afternoon, folks. Welcome to the Good Trouble Podcast, where we have curated conversations for racial and economic justice. My name is Reginald Williams. I'm one of your co-hosts and co-conspirators here with my co-host, Mr. Gregory Ball. What's up, Reggie? How you feeling, man? I'm feeling good, feeling great. Um, and we're very excited for today's conversation. Yes, we do have a great conversation lined up. And these are, these are I'm looking forward to this because I got to meet our guests today for the very first time around this, a little bit around this time last year. It was the first time that I actually got to, to meet him. Um, and this is a, a person who's passionate and com- and and passionate and committed to the work that he's doing in the world of education. So today we have Dr. Robert Johnson with us as our guest. Dr. Johnson, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm good. Feeling good. There's a lot to feel good about, man. Yes. And we're going to we're, listen. So I, I was looking over your bio. I want to jump right into this. How okay. does, how, okay, we're in New England. You are now the, uh, uh, the leader of Western New England University. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does a man go from the cold of Detroit <laughs> to the warmth of, 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 of Georgia in Morehouse and then end up back in the cold of New England? Well, you know, um, you know my, 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 my dad used to always tell me, um, you know, um, you know, you, you, you a, a good job and a good op- opportunity is wherever you can make a living. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I, I followed opportunity. And, you know, as you, as you think about Detroit, um, you know, great city that I grew up in. Um, it was fun. It was not the Detroit that most people think of. I mean, we used to keep our doors unlocked when we went to the store and you know, look at your hand going to the, yeah, yeah, truly Reggie. I mean, yeah, yeah. Once, once upon a time in America, uh, <laughs> you know, um, that was the Detroit I grew up in. And um, I did go to Morehouse and uh, in Atlanta and it was a great experience and uh, it's nothing like Atlanta, Georgia. And when I was there, Maynard Jackson was mayor and he was followed by um, Andrew Young. Yep. And, um, you know, it was it was good times in, it, in, in Atlanta. But, you know, I ended up in higher education and, um, you know, got my, my, my first job in higher ed in Ohio uh, and uh, at Central State University, HBCU. And... Um, you know, uh, left there and then went to Oakland University up in Michigan, which is uh, in Rochester, Michigan, right outside of Detroit. And, um, you know, then the rest is history uh, in terms of the journey, because, you know, Massachusetts, why not Massachusetts? It's kind of like the epicenter of higher education on the planet, right? So, yeah, I mean, it not kind of, it, it really is. So, you know, lots of opportunity here. And, um, you know, as a, as a person uh, who believes in, in, in seizing the opportunity, um, you know, I, I, I ended up here. And at some point I'll tell you the story of, of my Uncle Bob who ran Jet Magazine and James Brown and the story he told about opportunity. And I, I think that's kind of the, the, the mindset that I follow. <laughs> well, see, now this is something that most people do not know, that you are 
that your your uncle was running Jet Magazine. That, yeah, that, yeah. That the 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 Johnson family and being connected to Johnson Publishing that is a, an incredible legacy that 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 is that is deep in Chicago and and throughout the country. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, so my uncle Bob Robert E Johnson, who I was named after. Uh, well, I guess technically I was named after my grandfather, but he's also on a Morehouse alum. And, um, you know, Uncle Bob uh, was classmates with Dr. King. They both, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, mm -hmm. They both graduated in the class of, of 1948. Wow. And uh, they were uh, really, really, really good friends. Uh, but Uncle Bob uh, started running Jet in the early 50s. And if there was a story in Jet uh, uh, about a major figure in entertainment education on, or in any aspect of, um, of um, the black community that was news, Uncle Bob was all in it. I mean, he, he you know, this is a guy who uh, knew uh, every president and every president knew him from Eisenhower to Clinton until he died. Uncle Bob was on the plane with Richard Nixon uh, when he went to China. Uh, Uncle Bob took a leave of absence uh, when Andrew Young was UN ambassador uh, to be his press secretary uh, when uh, Andy Young uh, traveled throughout the continent of, of, of Africa. So, um, you know, I've had the good fortune of getting history in real time growing up, uh, up into my mid 30s until Uncle Bob. Uh, died. You know, Uncle Bob used to say that if it was if it was related to the black community and it wasn't in Jet, it wasn't news. And the great thing about Jet magazine is that it, you know, for for decades, it was the only way that black people across the country could get national news. Um, you know, this is before the internet and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, when BET started to come along and then social media and a few other things that began to change. But you know, we're, we're talking you know, some, some 30 plus years, you know, if you were in California and needed to know what was going on in Georgia, you picked up Jet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, that, and that, you know, just hearing that you come from that, coming from that legacy, and I would wanna know, you know, how, how do you, uh, how are you in the shadow of that and then end up in the world of higher ed? Because, you know, I, listen, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the, the Johnson story, because I've worked in publishing and, and mm. I've been consider him like one of the giants when it comes to mm. black storytelling in America. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I know that if it was me, mm. I'm going back to work at Ebony after I got out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's so, so that's, 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 that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. um, so when I went to Morehouse, you know, my uncle Bob, my dad and everybody else just assumed I was going to be, be a journalist, you know, that that was going to be my role. And when I first got arrived at Morehouse, I was an English major, uh, but I changed my major seven times and uh, ultimately ended up with a degree in economics. Uh, I had a very well-rounded education, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, you know at, at some point, you know, um, and as much as my Uncle Bob wanted me to um, you know, you know, leave Morehouse, graduate from Morehouse, of course, maybe get a master's and then come and work at Johnson Publishing Company. Um, you know, my dad and others said, you need to be the best version of you. And, um, you know, you need to pursue your dream, not somebody else's dream. Uh, 
And, you know, that, that kind of resonated with me. And, you know, I kind of stumbled into higher education and I, I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. I liked being on uh, the college and university campus, hanging out with the students. Um, I liked the lifestyle and what have you. So it was, it was, it was, it's a lot of fun. And probably um, in my early thirties, when I was about 30, 31, I decided at that point that I wanted to become a college or university president simply because I could make a difference. I could touch lives in a different way. Sure, the publication touched lives in, in a multifaceted way, uh, but you know, that, wasn't, that wasn't my journey. Um, my journey and my story was a different one. So I have an a, a, a interesting factoid though. You, you talk about living in that shadow. Uh, so I'm, I'm on my third presidency. Um, um, and when I uh, assumed my first president's role, you know, I turned to my wife, Michelle, and, you know, I looked up into the sky, Uncle Bob, knowing he's up in heaven. And I said, and this was what, 2010. I said, if I can just have a greater Google presence, when somebody Googles my name, than my Uncle Bob when they Google his name, then I know I will have arrived. I mean, that was, that was just my goal. I was always trying to live up to him and that legacy, but in a different way, in a different lane, man. And, um, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, cause I was a Huffington Post blogger and all of those kinds of things. And I remember that time, you know, I looked up and I started counting. I was like, see Uncle Bob, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> gotta keep that Google search. You gotta keep that Google search going, you know. <laughs> you said you talked about the, the 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 great advice your father gave you about you know following your passion. What were some? What were you know? What were the things that you were thinking of at that time? You said you started off as an English major. Was it you know? What, did you see yourself as a storyteller at, at that time? Oh no no no! But here's the one thing I have known ever since I was a kid. And I used to say this to my parents and everybody else. I said, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna end up doing, but I'm gonna lead something. You know, mm. I used to say it just like, I'm gonna lead something. I'm gonna be president of something, <laughs> you know? So it, it was always in me and I always had this passion to lead um, and um, didn't know why, didn't understand it um, in, in terms of how I developed that passion. But I just knew that I had a purpose um, um, that was inherent in me that I was supposed to touch other people's lives. Um, and I can't explain it, you know, so don't, you can, you can ask me 50 questions as to how I got there. I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe it was watching history in real time, uh, listening to my parents, you know, you know, watching my Uncle Bob, I don't, I, I don't know. Now, and you also just mentioned that you're on your third presidency. So you've been a college president, higher education executive for over a decade at this point. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about your journey now at Western New England University and what things look like on your campus? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I'm in my 12th year as, 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 as a president and um, I'm at the point in time of my career and my life that I, I, I'm in a position to take, you know, everything that I've learned over the years, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to put it in a nice crucible 
and in the midst of this global pandemic, say, how can we create what we now call Western New England, a new traditional university? You know, how can we uh, teach young people to learn, unlearn, and relearn as a constant state? How can we give them the skill set and the mindset to always add value on all that they do? Uh, my journey at Western New England University, starting in the midst of a global pandemic uh, in the summer of 2020, um, you know, yeah, yeah. it was exciting, <laughs> you know, exciting in that you know, I'm not that guy of status quo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like to tinker um, and um, but don't and, and I'm not minimizing uh, COVID or the pandemic and the lives that were lost and the lives that uh, have been impacted uh, for those who are still living. But to uh, uh, take over the helm of, a, of an institution uh, that is a vibrant institution, that is a great place with great people and um, for us to work together as a team to figure out how do we navigate our way through this storm. Um, it was, it was, um, it was uh, difficult, it was hard, and it was exhilarating. Well, why is that, Robert? You know, when in the history of the world uh, have a group of people who made up in their mind that they wanted to achieve a goal or, or to get to a certain point and they worked together and they were unsuccessful? Uh, that's what Western New England is. We are a group of people. We are a community of learners who made up in our mind uh, in August of, of, of 2020, September of 2020, that we were going to open school, uh, boots on the ground, fully residential, and that we were going to get through this. And you know what? We navigated and, 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 and we made it through. And did we have hiccups along the way? Yeah. There's a human spirit at Western New England University that I can't describe. And I've worked, uh, including Western New England on seven different college and university campuses uh, over the course of my, my professional career. Uh, we embody a human spirit that is unlike anything that I have ever seen. Uh, people well-intentioned, they work together. Yeah, do we have you know, people who you know, have little tips here and there, but by and large, everybody's rowing in the same direction with one goal in mind, one idea in mind, and that is how do we advance the institution for the best interests of our students? That is the essence of the human spirit as a community of learners. And one of the reasons why I'm at Western New England today, because in essence, that's who I am, you know, and, and think about this. So I've worked uh, in every not-for-profit higher education sector, okay? two-year, four-year, public, private, sectarian, non-sectarian, small, medium, large, rural, suburban, and urban. Okay, so I have, I have a broad lens of what mm -hmm. the academy looks like and what yep. the student experience looks, looks like. And uh, for me, as my mom used to always say, you have but one role in life, and that is to make a difference. And when I can go to a campus, uh, as I have, or come to a campus uh, like Western New England, uh, where everybody simply just wants to make a difference. Well, that's the embodiment of who I am, you know? So, you know, it, this beats the heck out of working, you know? <laughs> you know, because, you know, you know in, in a different context of Dr. King, I'm living the dream. Well, it's, 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 
it's interesting to hear you share those pieces from your parents because it feels it feels like they're almost like they were philosophers. Were they were they philosophy students? Because they are giving you gems to carry on with you. I mean, obviously that's what we would hope parents would do for their children. Mm -hmm. But the things that they're saying to you are 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 a little bit even further than you know you know to be a good citizen and what they're telling you things that are the how to how to navigate this world. You know, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, um, um, both of my parents, you know, they they have a high school education and, um, you know, um, you know, they both um, uh, my mother spent a couple of semesters in college, and my, as did my dad. Um, but they were philosophers of life, you know. So so, for example, you know, my mother used to say, you know, everybody tells you you got five senses. She's like, no, 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 no. You got six senses. And the sixth one that is my job to make sure that you have is common sense. She called it mother wit, you know? And uh, she says, you know, there are a lot of book smart people, but if you don't have mother wit, boy, you'll you, 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 you end up in a, in, in a heap of trouble. And, uh, and then my mother used to do things, you know, like with my brother and I, and um, when we were growing up, to teach us how to be gentlemen. Uh, so once a month, you know, because once a month we would go out to dinner, get all dressed up, you know, the linens on the cloth table, and she'd teach us how to sit and put the napkin in our lap and how to use, you know, the forks and the spoons and the knives and the, you know, and, you know, so she, she taught us how to be, how to be, be gentlemen. My dad uh, used to say, look, son, if you have to remind people you're the boss, you're not the boss, <laughs> you know, um, you know, he, he used to give me nuggets. In fact, I have, I have, um, a draft of a book of 10 lessons that my father taught me um, about leadership in life that uh, at some point I'm, I'm gonna work to get published, but each of them are nuggets like that about, 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 about leadership. My dad, my dad, when I was probably about seven or eight years old, gave me a dictionary. And um, he said, every week, I want a new word. I wanna know what the word means, and you have to use it in a sentence. I'm like, do. I mean, in my head, I'm like, do. I'm seven years old, really. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. And uh, but nonetheless, uh, his point was, you need to command the English language. You know, mm -hmm. and you do that through knowledge and understanding words and what they mean and how to use them. You know, my mother. You know. Um, you know, by today's standards, <laughs> uh, 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 Greg and Reggie, uh, you all will appreciate this. I was an abused child, okay? So I remember I was in the, um, I was in the second grade mm -hmm. and uh, my mother had a day off from work and I had the audacity to think that I was gonna be off too. I was like, I'm not going to school, you, you off, I'm off. And my mother took her belt and whooped my behind down the street for two and a half blocks all the way to school. And as she was whipping my butt down the street, the neighbors were like, you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, you, you know. And, so wait, it's, uh, it's bad enough. It's bad enough to get, <laughs> get, get tore up. But they get tore up to an audience. To an audience, right? <laughs> to an audience. And then when I got to school, uh, Mrs. Wilder was my homeroom teacher. Um, she said, why is he crying? She's, and my mom said, well, he didn't want to come to school. And, you know, I had to beat his behind all the way. And she's like, that's okay. He's going to be fine. <laughs> and uh, 
went to school that day and you know the rest the rest is history and my mom will tell you that you know like when i was in middle uh, you know middle school high school and what have you i never missed school cuz i you know it was something about i just got to always go to school no matter what you know i tell my that kids kind of motivation that, i wouldn't miss school either <laughs> <laughs> i tell i tell my kids today they're wimps i said you know, when i was growing up in detroit i remember school never closed because of weather I remember when we had 22 inches of snow and there was no discussion uh, in the news or among the school district as to whether or not school was gonna be open or whether or not we was going to school. You know, we got our shovels, we got out there and we went to school, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I come from the old school, you know, my kids, when I started telling that story, I know dad. And, you know, you had to go to school and the snow was piled up so high you couldn't see the streets. And, you know, they, they start reciting the story for me. But, um, you know, I call it character, you know. <laughs> so, you know, as we talk about character, you know, mm -hmm. I, I remember many a story like that from uh, the elders in my community talking mm -hmm. about the, the trials and tribulations of mm -hmm. walking to school and mm -hmm. having to really push through and rather on. But, um, you know, as as we're looking back on the past two years that we've experienced mm -hmm. uh, with the pandemic, as you've mentioned, I know that last year you were on a panel uh, with both of our, our organization's presidents mm -hmm. um, talking about higher education's role mm -hmm. in the new normal. How mm -hmm. have you seen, you know, this transformation of higher education and, you know, the character and the, and the resilience of your students and of your school community really grow and foster over this time? I think, I think, you know, we have become more agile. I think that, um, you know, we, we, we have been, you know, people talk about mental health, uh, wellness, mental health and wellness. And, um, you know, I heard uh, one of my colleagues, she, she said, you know, it's less mental health and wellness, and we have to talk about mental agility, uh, that we have been uh, very uh, agile in terms of our ability to adjust mentally in the midst of a storm. I think higher education um, has uh, been forced uh, into a place where we are now reinventing ourselves. There's no going back to what we used to call normal. We are creating the new normal. And for those of us who understand that in the midst of this storm, um, that we're not going back to the normal and that we're writing the next chapter of what normal is going to look like, then we will be in a better position as an institution of higher learning to meet the needs of the public. Our students, uh, which ultimately will become known as the COVID generation, uh, will be known also um, as the second greatest generation. They will be known as the agile generation. Think about what they have been through over the course of the last two years. Um, um, you know, they didn't, they didn't stop and give up. They kept going. They kept showing up. And, you know, that's gonna give them the resilience to build a global economy for America in ways that we never ever imagined. If we think about history and what came out of some of the most dire times uh, throughout our history, uh, World War I, the last pandemic, the Great Depression, World War II, it was innovation and creativity. You know, some of the best company and brands that we know today came out of those eras, even the Great Recession you know, for that great, for that matter, in 2008, 
So it is and so it will be. We've learned new ways to learn and adapt and to work. And that's gonna become the new status quo. And it is this generation of young people who are gonna boldly take us where we've never gone before. And I think that's part of what excites me about the Academy and Western New England and what we're doing. We have this unique opportunity in the history of, think about this, in the history of the world to educate a generation of young people who are in the midst of this historical moment to go out and do something that, you know, when I was in school, this is not what was going on in history, you know, but this is what's going on in their lifetime. And we have the opportunity to give them the toolkit to go out and be and create jobs in ways that we never imagined. We're giving them the toolkit so that they can one day be part of that generation that goes to Mars. Give them the toolkit to come up and figure out how to use AI to come up with a cure for cancer, to give them the toolkit to solve world hunger and create peace in, in ways that we never imagined and bring equity and justice uh, and, and the possibilities of life uh, to think the unthinkable and to do the undoable. So I have the humble, the humble opportunity to lead an institution of higher learning with young people uh, who are idealistic and are thinking about the possibilities of life and want to figure out how to sustain this planet. Man, what an exciting time. So Western New England is in this place. The, the academy is in this place where we get to do some unique and great things. And many of my mentors, uh, many, some of who have retired, uh, some, some of who, who have passed along, uh, who've led institutions of higher learning, and they did some great things. They didn't have the opportunity to do what this generation of college and university presidents will be doing with this generation of young people. It is an exciting time. So I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic uh, because I think, I think there are better times ahead of us uh, than more, more better times ahead of us than behind us. So with, with the, the excitement and that, and that optimism, how has that shaped your vision of what the university is like? Because, you know, like you said, you get put, thrust into these situations. And now, you know, there was a time when you could have, when people wouldn't have been able to envision virtual learning and mm -hmm. many of the different things. Like, mm -hmm. so has that, has that given you a second to kind of pause and say, okay, well, now that these are all the, 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 the tools I can use, what does what can I shape the university into being? Is that something that's f something for you and, and all the folks that are working so hard next to you? Is that something that you're kind of re-envisioning what, what the university is? Well, let me, let, let me first start with mm -hmm. lessons learned. You know, yeah. so prior to COVID, um, you know, there was this movement that, you know, online learning was going to solve everything. It was going to be the great equalizer. Um, it was going to it was going to help poor people uh, to get a college degree and what have you. Well, what did we learn during COVID? The fact is we need socialization. We need to be face to face. And while online learning uh, is helpful, it is a compliment. It is not the primary tool. The greatest tool that we have within the academy is the mentor-mentee relationship with faculty and students. That and the socialization of bringing people together from all walks of life, from all colors and ethnicities and religious beliefs and uh, socioeconomic statuses and help and, and allowing them to learn from one another. So 
in that regard, as I, as I reimagine um, you know, Western New England University, I talk about the new traditional university. And it's about holding on to the best of what um, the, the academy used to be, uh, but shedding those things that are no longer relevant and embracing the possibilities of the new tools that we have in front of us. So we want face-to-face -face instruction. We want um, that faculty member interacting with that student. We wanna have social activities so that uh, students can uh, develop socially, uh, uh, psychologically, uh, morally and ethically. And we do that through programming in and out of the classrooms. Uh, but we also understand that we have tools uh, like online learning and um, that's gotta complement what we do. So in this brave new world, as we're creating a new normal, it's gonna be status quo for a student to be taking five classes, uh, living in the residence halls and one or two of them might be online, but they still get the benefits of, of that, that social interaction of living and being on campus. Um, as as a part of reimagining higher education, as a steady state, we have to teach young people how to learn, unlearn, and relearn as a steady state. Uh, we have to give them knowledge uh, and the power of learning, um, to give them the skill set and the mindset to do things that cannot be replicated by an algorithm or a robot so that they can continuously create new value. And unlike when I came out of college, uh, this generation of college graduates will have upwards of 12, 15, 17 jobs uh, over their entire professional careers and, uh, and work in five different industries and three of those industries don't even exist. You know, so think about that. They're changing jobs about every two to three years. You know, Greg, Reggie, you know, when I came out of Morehouse, if I had changed jobs every year or two or three, my dad would have sat me down and said, son, um, you know, we need to have a conversation. Um, boy, boy, why, why, why can't you keep a job? <laughs> you know, um, you seem to be un unstable, you know, you, you, you know, are you drinking? You got a drug problem? You gamble? What's, what's, what, what, what's, what's going on? You know, you know, you know, my generation, you know, you kept, a, you kept the same job five to seven years easily, you know, and you might. More than that, right? The people that's were, right. More than people that. People wanted, wanted a job, they stayed in the spot for 20 years. That's yeah. right. That's right. But those days are of the past. This generation of young people uh, uh, are entrepreneurs and they're going to create jobs. And we have to, and the reason why it's important for them to learn, unlearn, and relearn is because their first job is going to be very different than their fifth job. Our role within the academy is to give them the two set, the, 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 cool, the toolkit, the skill set and the mindset to get that first job and then to create every job thereafter. Because even when they go work for company X, whatever job that they take uh, in three to five years, that job is obsolete. So if they're not reinventing themselves within that company on that job, then uh, they're going to become obsolete. So we have to have the infrastructure on our campus to enable them uh, to go out into the world of work, uh, to have this agile mind as part of the new traditional university, uh, uh, enabling them to learn, unlearn and relearn. But we also have to have the apparatus that when they need to retool themselves, that we have online programs and certificates uh, where they can come back virtually and retool as a steady state. Every two, three, four, five years, come on back. Whereas back in the day, unless you were a doctor, 
you know, a physician, an engineer, and a handful of other fields, you didn't have to go back and get additional training in order to sustain a career over your lifetime. Whereas today, that will be the case. Also, uh, with the online piece, you know, we want to build um, uh, stackable credentials and certificates as part of the degree. So it's conceivable that a student could uh, graduate with a degree in engineering and a certificate in cyber and be certified in cybersecurity, just as standard fare, right? I mean, just as status quo, uh, SAS or SAP, or I mean, I mean, you could you could, you could pick anything. Project management, depending upon the field. Uh, so we want we want to arm our students to be able to learn, unlearn, and relearn as as part of being a new traditional university uh, with an agile mind education. Uh, and I think that that part. Uh, is what is exciting for me. And that's that's how I envision the academy. I recently um, 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 was featured in an article in University Business, uh, and you all can take a look at it. And I was talking about, um, you know, uh, what is the new traditional university? And I was talking about it in the context of Western New England University, and why is it important? And I think that, that that's what I see for the future. What I just described to you as much of that article is what I see for the future. Um, and it's the possibilities, it's not status quo. And, uh, and it's also creating an agile organization. Hybrid work is here to stay. Um, there are people on our campus um, uh, who will work 50% of the time remotely all the time. There are some people, um, there are a handful of positions where that can be 100% remote. And there are some positions, you know, like in student affairs, residence life and that sort of thing. You can't do that virtually. But, you know, as we think about the metaverse, you know, how do we create a virtual community on our campus in ways that we never thought or imagined? You know, I don't know, but I'm sure it's willing and, and ready to explore the opportunities. I think the academy is this unique place where we can create the future. Some of the greatest inventions in the world came right out of the academy. You know, you know what's happening when you're thirsty. You, th you drink Gatorade, dude. And, uh, you know, University of Florida, right? <laughs> you know, but, you know, you know, all of these things ultimately have come out of institutions of higher learning. So uh, I think these, it's an exciting time um, to be um, in higher education, not without its challenges. Uh, our business model has got to change. We have to figure out how to contain cost and, and um, um, you know, make it more financially feasible for students to, to attend college. And we have to also um, uh, eliminate this, this great divide between the haves and the have nots uh, in terms of college attainment as well. Uh, because I still believe that a college education still is the best way to go. There's a direct correlation with one's uh, college education, that, that is the level of education you have and your lifelong learnings. And I don't think that's going to change. I'm really glad that you brought up um the business model of higher education because it mm -hmm. is a business and as we think about and i also loved hearing about um the learner's mindset that you're really working to instill within folks in your in your campus community and how you mm -hmm. compare programs that also merge the certificates and the opportunities mm -hmm. beyond mm -hmm. undergrad and doctoral programs to also bring in those transferable skills mm -hmm. that folks That's can right. see their careers on a trajectory that is preparing for the careers right. of the future, you know, trying to work session proof our learning to make it sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, right. 
In the financing space, though, as we hear about these large calls for student debt relief to help families and students who are really suffering with this burden, what are your thoughts on how we can really solve for some of the affordability crisis that you just mentioned? Um, I think I think when we think about um, affordability, um, I think that there are, uh, are a couple of things. Uh, number one, um, I think that uh, on the public policy side, I think Congress, um, at a minimum, needs to increase the um, Pell Grant, um, um, yep. um, at least double it, I, you know, at least two and a half to three times more than it is today, number one. The Pell, and then they need to index it to inflation so that every year as costs go up uh, within the economy, um, if it's indexed, then we'd be in a different, very different place. Uh, if uh, Pell Grant had been indexed, you know, going back to the 70s and 80s since its inception, we wouldn't have this great divide. When I attended Morehouse uh, College, um, you know, you could basically go to school uh, at a public or private institution uh, if you were poor uh, with a full Pell Grant and, 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 and state grants, you know. Um, that was all that was needed. I mean, your loans were only about 20%. Uh, and then in the 1980s, um, you know, the public policy changed. And today, uh, those same poor students have to borrow 70%, you know, grants and, and, and state aid only cover about 30% or so of, 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 of the actual cost. So I think public policy has got to address that piece. On the higher education side and within the academy, we have to look at our business models and figure out ways um, to bring about more equity and access to students. Now, um, our higher education system is tiered. So one size does not fit all. All institutions uh, cannot and should not have the business model. But here is the reality as we sit today. Um, if you are a student uh, or family who comes uh, from a, a low, if you are a low income family, you can get a college education. Uh, you may not be able to go where you want to go, but you can get a college education without deeply going into debt, okay? So what, Pell Grant is what, 5,700 bucks or so, $5,800 roughly uh, for Pell Grant. Um, that can get you in, in, and take care of you in most community colleges right now, right? Um, uh, many of the public and state universities in a heartbeat. Um, um, along with some state aid and a few other institutional aid, you can, you can, you, you can get by. It's going to be tight. Um, but having said that, I think we also have to look at how do we reduce our costs? I think the way that we do that is we begin to um, uh, create more hybrid programs. You know, you heard me talking about it's conceivable that a student uh, could be living on campus, taking five classes, and four of them are face-to-face, um, 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 -face, and one of them is online. Uh, I think we have to look at stackable credentials that ultimately lead to a degree. I think we have to look at cert uh, um, uh, certificates and certifications built into uh, what we do. I think we have to create a K through 20 system uh, mm -hmm. that is K through 12, four year degree, master's degree in some cases, and in other uh, cases all the way through the doctorate or, or professional levels. Uh, and what we do know is that if we have an educated Population. One of the things that it, that that made the baby boomers such a great generation in terms of 
uh, the economy and growth was because of their education level and uh, the wealth that they were able to accumulate as a, as, as, as a result of that. So we got to figure out how to close this gap uh, from a public policy perspective. I think on our campuses, we have to figure out how to control costs and make it more affordable uh, for students wherever uh, possible. Uh, and we have to evolve our business models to be entrepreneurial uh, and, and innovative and ge generate multiple streams of revenue, which can ultimately bring down the cost um, uh, for students. I really appreciate um, your mention of policy <laughs> in this particular instance, because if we if we don't have the moral imperative to make sure that at the state and federal level we're doing we're making the right policy changes to make the experience more affordable, we're never mm -hmm. going to get ahead. Not That's in right. this global and economic crisis, and not for the future. So thank and, you for that. And, 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 and Reggie, the fundamental question is: as a society, do we think higher education is a public good? Mm. As a society, do we believe higher education is a public good? If we believe higher education is a public good, then public policy should follow that. And right. clearly in the, in the 60s and the 70s with the onslaught of uh, um, more uh, public four-year institutions and uh, community colleges and what have you, we felt that uh, higher education was a public good. Public policy right now says higher education is no longer a public good. You know, now, whether uh, our politicians and the population at large believes that or, or, or not, I don't know. But I can tell you public policy says higher education is no longer a public good because the funding is simply not there. Why do you think that is, Dr. Johnson? I was just about to ask the same thing. Like, how do we as a country, from seeing all the 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 good that higher education has brought us, how do we get to a point where higher education isn't held up to that space? And in some cases, we're giving it, making it hard for kids to get through high school. Right? <laughs> Don't get me started on high school. Um, you know, I, I refuse to talk about that on the grounds it may incriminate me. And when I say <laughs> high school, I'm, talk, I'm talking about public policy, okay? Mm. okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, am I am still a quasi-public figure. I'll, I'll let that go. So, um, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, um, uh, Greg, to your point, um, I think, I, I, I really, really do believe our politicians, um, in their heart of hearts, they think that they believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, the only problem is, is that they're not looking at the outcomes uh, and the outcomes is um, access. And every college and university is not an access institution, um, but where you do have access institutions, um, the policy has to follow. Um, I think the public at large, I think we're bifurcated. Uh, I think that there's a segment of our population who does not believe they should be paying for uh, other people's kids to go to college. Uh, I, I, I believe that. And then I, I, and then I think that there's another segment of the population who ab ab absolutely believes that uh, from a public policy perspective, we ought to be supporting this financially. So we see that divide, even with what's going on in Congress right now. Yeah. And the argument about student loan debt, you know, should we forgive it or shouldn't we? You know, um, you know, I don't think we should forgive it by the way. 
Um, I think that I, I think people I think I think we all have to have some skin in the game. It is not fair, you know, for the person um, um, who's paying their taxes, um, you know, maybe who has no kids to foot that bill. Uh, but I do think that we ought to find a way that makes it easier for students to pay those loans back um, and, and make it easier um, uh, for them. Uh, I think the current public policy makes it more difficult. And then if we look at public policy on the front end where students have to take out uh, fewer, uh, borrow less money uh, to go to school and is supported by more federal and state level grants, then over time we, we, we ultimately will will have parity, um, you know, but, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough public policy um, um, uh, discussion, but it's not an easy fix. You gotta think about how we got here. We, 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 we didn't get here overnight. We got here over a 30 or 40 year period. Um, so I think we have, we have to be very, very careful because I think that there are a lot of unintended consequences that could come from us uh, having knee jerk reactions one way or the other. Um, um, in terms of whatever it is we ultimately do. It's so interesting that, um, you know, last year we put out a report that talks about what it would cost to make debt-free and tuition-free public uh, community college and public, ed public higher education possible. And those numbers are, are staggering. You know, they're in the billions for us to make sure that our state universities and higher education institutions have the infrastructure, the staffing, and the support to really open their doors to students who may not have the money or the parental resources or the family in the community to pay for, you know, that parent plus loan that, to get through uh, four years at a, a university or longer. But to, back to your point, it's about policy. It's about how Is we it, look it, at making that a priority. It, it is it is about policy, but if you're really going to talk about free college, uh, tuition free college, you have to start with the K through 12 system. Um, you cannot have um, a disproportionate number of students graduating from high school uh, without having uh, the fundamentals uh, to be college ready. You know, uh, you know, and we can look at states that have done a free tuition. Um, I think with the exception of Tennessee, by and large, those programs haven't worked. Look at New York State. I mean, when they put all the parameters in there, you know, you must, you know, you can't stop out or drop out. You must take a full load, so forth and so on. And then after you graduate, you must live within the state for X number of years. And if not, you got to pay the money back you know, the participation rates within those programs, um, they, they, are, they, they, they are minimal. And one of, the, one of the problems is, you know, when they say you can't stop out or drop out, you know, well, for that person, you know, coming from who, who, who would normally have to work their way through school, they're gonna have to have a semester or a time where, you know what, they might not be able to go full time in any given semester. You know, they may have to stop out for a minute. They have a family that they're supporting so forth and so on, uh, which makes it more difficult. Part of the fix uh, to that is on the front end and it's K through 12. You know, about five, six, seven years ago, I can't remember exactly how many years ago, in my hometown of Detroit, 75% of African-American males in high school were not graduating. And, um, you know, I was back home. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, did you say 75? I said 75% of black males in Detroit public schools were not graduating from high school. And 
um, they thought I was being facetious. I was with some friends and some of them are pretty influential people there in the city and in the state, um, black and white. I said, we ought to totally um, deconstruct this and create a new model. Um, and you know, we ought, to, we, we ought to implode the system and start over. I said, this system, our K through 12 system, if you think about it, it was created for an agrarian economy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> is no and, and and you know that's that's like trying to take the technology in um, in a Tesla and retrofit it into a Model T Ford. It, it just doesn't work. And I and they say, well, what do you mean by imploded? I said we need to assume we never had a public school system and build it from the ground up today, uh, in terms of what teachers look like, what learning looks like, what curriculum looks like, what our classroom buildings look like how we use technology, so forth and so on. They say, well, but if you do that, you're gonna lose a, a whole bunch of students. I said, well, <laughs> we're already losing 75%. Um, and I said, but what you build into this public policy as you reinvent the K through 12 system is you make the assumption that they're gonna be students who are currently in the system who are gonna fall through. And you create a safety net that's gonna support them until the day they're die, they die. And if you start now in, the, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, so forth and so on, 18 years later, uh, or really 12 years later, you have kids in the public schools that are learning differently and under different, uh, and with different outcomes, they're graduating, uh, they're either work ready or college ready, um, and, and we're in a very, very different place. So you, you at least know that by year 13, you now have a different workforce that's uh, a workforce or, or prospective college students um, you know, coming out of high school that are in a very, very different place. I said, under our current model, um, you still are gonna have a K through 12 system that's operating like it's in an agrarian economy with outcomes that are dismal that are dismal. And I know I said I wasn't gonna talk about K through 12, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's interesting. So I, when we start thinking about that, the whole idea of reimagining education, mm -hmm. I, want, I wonder how, how feasible that is given where we are. So for example, earlier in the conversation, we, we were talking about how, um, it was for the public good for higher education. Mm -hmm. So part of that is you have a better educated electorate so they can make better decisions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I can be polite, I can say we're not quite at that space right now. <laughs> um, so how do we implement or even start to express some of these forward thinking ideas at, at a time when it seems like we're the least accepting of those, of anything that's outside of the usual box. Well, so, you know, let me, let, 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 let me answer the question with a question. Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, where do we end up? <laughs> if we continue down the current path, you know, you know if, if game theory, you know, as in uh, Morehouse in economics, you know, it was a course in game theory. If we game this out over the next 20 years, um, you know, I, I, you know, the scenarios don't look too, 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 too rosy, you know, 
Um, I think so. So, what's the what, what what's Einstein's definition of insanity? You continue to do the same things and expect a different set of results. Okay, so the notion that um, it's too hard or it's too difficult, I challenge that. When in the history of the world, uh, and when we think about the essence and the embodiment of, 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 of the human spirit and who we are and, and what we are all about, um, have a group of people ever come together and decided they wanted to do something or achieve something, and they were unsuccessful. We can go back from the founding of this country, um, you know, and 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 you know them arriving on Plymouth Rock and forging all the way out to California, you know, um, to build a great American experiment. Uh, and I still do believe America, with all of our human frailties, is still the greatest country on the face of the earth. Um, you know, in terms of, of, of opportunity, um, if, we, if, if we seek it. Um, we have to embody that same human spirit and we can't give in and we can't give up. You know, so I was telling a, a, a group of um, uh, African-American males about a year ago, um, no, about two years ago. Um, and they were talking about, you know, a man is hard and I'm, I'm gonna give up, you know, my Pell Grant, you know, I don't have this, I'm gonna drop out of school. I said, stop. I said, you know, once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as a Pell Grant. There was no such thing as a student loan. Uh, people worked their way through college and they kept going. I said, once upon a time, um, you know, you and I could not even uh, walk these hollow halls of this institution, of this organization, okay? Because it was against the law. And now you've come, you know, through your junior year and you're ready to give up simply because you know, you don't, you feel like you don't have enough Pell Grant, you don't have enough this. Let me tell you about my Uncle Bob who ran Jet Magazine and then uh, while he was at Morehouse and in the summertime, he would come work in the tobacco fields up here in New England to make enough money to go back to school uh, at Morehouse in the fall. I said, so, you know, you know, if you want it bad enough, if you're hungry enough, you can make it happen. So, uh, Greg, I, I, I hear what you're saying, mm -hmm. uh, but I think that you know, we're standing on the shoulders of our foreparents, you know, who died to get less than what we have and that we take for granted each and every day. So the fact that it might be hard, the fact that it might be difficult, the fact that we may not exactly know what the right answer is, um, is no reason uh, for us not to forge ahead and to try some things and to keep fighting. And guess what? Some things we try will work and some things we try won't work. I mean, what would it be for me as a college president, as an African-American uh, college president say, well, you know, I see all of this social injustice, uh, um, you know, and inequities um, uh, within the academy in terms of educational attainment for people of color. Uh, nothing I can do. So, you know, I'm just gonna walk away. Bump that, okay? You know, I was on a call today uh, here in the Commonwealth with uh, all the private college university uh, presidents. Uh, we, we meet periodically, you know, talk about COVID and other stuff. And, you know, there are those of us who are sitting leading institutions that 50 years ago, it were like, what are you even trying to get into this institution for? Okay, you know, so, Things are not, you know, you know, Greg and Reggie, things are not where they need to be or where we want to be, but let's not be um, ahistorical about this. 
is not what it used to be. People died and shed blood uh, so that, you know, I could be, so did you, both of you can be in the positions that you are to have a voice to reach out, uh, you know, to tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands and millions, you know, by virtue of, you know, this, this very medium that we're on right now to share ideas and to bring people to, to, to create thought provoking things and, and to imagine the possibility. So yeah, it's hard, it's difficult. Uh, but you know, you know, my father used to tell me you know, if you want to make it in life, um, you got to have a positive attitude. Um, you have to have the love of God in your heart and you have to just try and do the right thing. And, and you can't tell me, you can't tell me that if all of us, the three of us on this, this, this screen, people who are listening to this, that if all of us have a positive attitude, the love of God in our hearts, and we just want to do the right thing, that we can't figure this thing out. I, that's just, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, listen, now you done made me feel bad. So I guess I got to roll with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man. All right, fine. No, 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 no. I do understand what you're saying and the context of what you're saying. But you know, my, 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 my uncle Bob used to say to me, you know, when you come across someone, um, um, who says something that is unreasonable, insensitive, um, that it, 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 it bleeds of injustice or racism or any other kind of ism. He said, you know, your, your, your instinct may be to, uh, is to take their heads off. But he said, what you must understand is that because you are educated, you are part of what W.B. Du Bois talked about in terms of the talented tenth. Um, you have a social responsibility to educate them uh, in any way that you can and to engage them, start with them wherever they are and try and bring them to wherever they need to be. Uh, but he also said, you know, you don't try and rationalize with irrational people. There's some people, no matter what you say or do, you know, they're not going to change. You know, he's not talking about those individuals, but he's talking about the person who is truly operating from a paradigm of ignorance. They don't know it. And in their hearts. They really do and want to do the right thing. He's talking about that person, you know? He's not talking about the person who is truly operating from a, uh, um, a paradigm of malice and ill intent. You know, there are people who are doing bad things who really believe they're doing the right thing. He's talking about those people. So as an educated citizenry, um, you know, all of us uh, have to be part of, of that talented tent and take on the world and uh, speak for those who have no voice. Uh, you know, have a present for those, have a presence for those who have no, no presence. All of us are in rooms and have conversations with people that I know the fellas that, a lot of fellas I grew up with on Grand Avenue off of Dexter and Davidson in Detroit, don't even know those rooms exist, okay? So every time I'm in a meeting, I'm speaking for them, you know? Yeah, I'm speaking for, you know, the, the, that poor family, regardless of their, their race or color or anything in Roxbury, uh, who was economically and socially deprived, that don't know these conversations are taking, uh, taking place. You and I have a social responsibility while we're in that room to understand we're speaking for them. We are their voice, we are their lens. Uh, we are the social conscience uh, in that room to help bring about change. You can't 
it's hard to bring about change if you're not in the room, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Otherwise you're just out outside beating the door saying, we need change, we need change, but you have no clue about what's going in. My thing is get in the room and influence um, decisions when decisions are being made. Well, now we know that you have three books to write. <laughs> the one with the one with your dad's advice, because I think that's an incredible idea. If you you said you already got that queued up, let's get that mm -hmm. finished. Let's get that out there. Then you could do a sequel with where um things my uncle Bob told me. That's <laughs> yep. another one. That's a good one. And yep. then how to fix all this, uh, how to fix education <laughs> by Dr. Robert Johnson. I like that too. Yeah, yeah. We're only limited by our imaginations and. All of what I do know is that all of us are smarter than any one of us. And look, I don't, I don't care what one's political views are. I don't care where they are on the spectrum. I, I embrace all people. I really, I'm not an ideologue. I'm in, in no, I just like to get stuff done from a pragmatic perspective. And you know, I'll work with with, with people on with with any uh, on any extreme of the of the of, of, of the paradigm. As long as they're reasonable and they 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 they, they want to work together, you know, I, I I I think that's the only way we make things happen. In the spirit of making uh, things happen, Dr. Johnson, you know, we often ask our guests, "What's one commitment that they that they'll make for in the spirit of good trouble this week?" You've given us a lot, but just you know, one or two things that you're committing to for this week in terms of committing some good trouble. Um, <laughs> some good trouble. You know, so um, one would be, so I have a, I have a vision board and um, it has 10 questions I ask myself um, every day. And one of them is, um, how will I make a difference in somebody's life today? Okay, you know, a lot of times we talk about, oh, I just wanna make a difference in somebody's life. No, no, how will I make a difference in somebody's life today? Um, so that would, that, 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 that would be one. And, you know, and, and, and that can be in the spirit of you're in a grocery store and somebody's having, looks like they're having a hard time. You just share a kind word. Um, you know, you give a person a word of encouragement. Um, you know, I try and identify somebody uh, on my team or somebody in my life that I, I'm either going to text, email, WhatsApp, call, or have a conversation with to impact their lives on that day. Okay. So I think that 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 would be that 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 would be one, and then the second would be, um, you know, when we talk about it in, in the spirit of, of this upcoming uh, week, is um, is to try to continue to be mentally agile, um, uh, and embrace the change that the world is going through, this shock treatment of COVID, uh, and. Uh, to permeate that mental agility as a leader, uh, as a as a dad, as a husband, you know, um, you know, as a nephew, as a cousin, as a friend, as a colleague, uh, and as a as 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 being one that's part of a community. See, I have this fundamental belief, um, um, Reggie and, and and Greg. I believe that if every person on this planet, each and every day, when they wake up. If they say to themselves, I'm going to do one thing to touch one person's life in a positive way each and every day, that the world would overnight become a better place. 7.8 billion people on this planet. 
7.8 billion people waking up every day and say, you know what? I just want to touch one person's life in a positive way today. Through a kind word, deed, act, whatever. So that's my story and, that, and, 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 and I'm sticking to it, you know? Um, you know, I think life is too short and we are, we're fortunate and we're privileged. You know, I tell our students all the time, um, as, an, as a person with a college degree on a planet with 7.8 billion people, um, we represent about 7% of the world's population. So therefore, whether we like it or not, uh, we're privileged. And therefore we have a social responsibility to give back and leave the world better than the way we found it. In whatever form or fashion that's appropriate for you. I'm not saying go out and be the next Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, what have you. You know, it's, 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 it's what's important to you. And as long as we understand that we're all part of something bigger than ourselves as an educated citizenry uh, within the academy and outside of the academy, man, um, uh, the best is yet to come when it comes to this world and this planet. Sorry, I get off my soapbox. You asked one question and I... <laughs> Thank you for such an insightful answer and for sharing your time with us today. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. It's been, it's, it's been a lot of fun. The time has just flown by. Yeah. It's been incredible. It, it has. <laughs> it's been well, great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Well, folks, that's all the time that we have for today. Make sure to come back and make your commitment to Good Trouble. And we'll thank you and see you next time. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much. All right. Have a good day.